1 Samuel chapter 19, just making our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse through this uh, book. And uh, we find ourselves here in the closing verses of chapter 19. Title of this morning's message is, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Why do bad things happen? To good people? That's a good question right there. I'll just give you the spoiler alert, the quick answer, because there's no good people. There's no such thing as good people, right? Uh, but, uh, but man, you know, we see it happen in our world. We see, we see bad things happen. Maybe sometimes bad things happen to us, and we are left with a, with a questioning, troubled heart that says, I don't understand why this is going on. A lot of times, maybe you've been in that position where a bad thing happens to you, and you kind of have the response, like I so often have the response, which is to say, what did I do wrong? What, why is it? What is God, you know, why is he coming after me? You start having, you know, this troubled heart about what is it that, that I have done wrong. And, and there is consequences of sin, and sometimes we, ha- we suffer consequences of our sin, and we, we needn't be surprised when that happens. But I'm talking about those unique times when God allows bad things to happen in our lives, and they're unexplainable to us and to our, to our mind's eye give you an example of of how this worked out. There's a guy named Jeremiah Willie who managed a Circle K store in Phoenix, Arizona. And basically a decent guy who had a very bad thing happen to him. He was robbed at gunpoint and the robbers beat him severely. Um, and, and in the process of beating him, they actually pistol whipped him, causing a pretty significant head injury. He was transported by paramedic ambulance to the hospital, and he required uh, care uh, and, and uh, a CAT scan and the whole bit. And in the process of this treatment and in the process of these serious injuries that Jeremiah um, had suffered, well, he and his wife were worshiping and glorifying God, thanking God for the attack on his life. Why? Were they just super spiritual and able to, to do this? Well, maybe, but here's what happened, is that when they did the CAT scan on Jeremiah, what they found was that he had a brain tumor. And the brain tumor would have taken his life, but because of the timing of the CAT scan, they caught it early and they were able to intervene and they were able to treat that tumor and save his life. And the, the, the issue here is that had he never been harmed, he would have never been healed. And, and when it comes to the plans and purposes of God, we see a similar dynamic at work. Not that God wants to harm us, but rather he, he does redeem these bad things that happen to us for good purposes. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said this. He said, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that uh, you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And, and so today what we're going to do is we're going to see that David is going through just such a perfecting process, a good guy, a godly man, being obedient to the Lord, going through some unfortunate things that, that you know, a bummer of a thing, but this morning what we're going to focus on is four elements of God's perfecting process in David's life that have huge implications for us. 
okay? Uh, four elements of David's perfecting that have implications for us if we'll pay attention. We'll pick it up in verse 19 of chapter 19 where we left off. And it says, Now it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Now you'll recall, up until this point, basically, Saul, God's anointed, the the king over Israel, he has become completely filled with selfish, self-centered, selfish ambition. And so Saul has become a guy who at one time you know, a man that was serving God, building God's kingdom, became very self-focused, and now it was all about Saul building his empire. And so what happened was, at a certain point, God was like, everybody out of the pool, you're all done, taking my Holy Spirit from you. And he took a spirit from King Saul, and he gave his spirit to David. And David, now God's anointed, the man God had called to rule the nation. But David, a very humble, godly man, he just was content to wait upon the Lord. Samuel came, he anointed him, he was tending his father's sheep out in the field, a very lowly position, and he was content to stay there until God saw fit to raise him up. So the day came when his father sent him out to go check on the status of his brothers there on the front line, bring some cheese to them and so on, some supplies. He'd find David, and, or rather find Goliath there, threatening the troops. Everybody's afraid. David's the guy by the Spirit of God who steps up and says, no, 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 this guy is not going to defy the armies of the living God. He's not going to blaspheme God in this way. I'll take him. And he does. And God uses him in an incredible way. He fights Goliath, kills Goliath, and then he, he is, you know, Saul promptly makes him the guy who's in charge of all of his fighting forces. David has phenomenal success to the point to where his fame and popularity grows throughout Jerusalem, throughout Israel, and now all the ladies are singing his song. It's the, it's the number one hit on all the radio stations. Saul has killed his thousands. David is tens of thousands. And Saul is ticked off. Why? Well, because somebody else is clearly God's hand is upon. And so Saul is like, oh, no, 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 this guy, what, he, what, the only thing left for him is my kingdom, my throne, and he ain't getting that, so I'm going to kill him, right? And this is how far Saul has fallen. He once, at one time, a man after God's own, or, well, a man, you know, after God's own heart in the sense that he's called by God, anointed by God, right? And now Saul's gotten to the place where he's killing the man who's after God's own heart. And so he seeks to kill him. He has all kinds of schemes, all kinds of plans. They all come to nothing. And so last week what we saw was that Saul tried to draw other people into his battle. He's like, hey, I can't kill him, but you guys, y'all gather together, help me kill him. And so this is what we read here is that these people now who are in cahoots with Saul tell him, hey, you know, he's at Nioth in Ramah. I have written in the margin of my Bible that there's always people willing to help us sin. There's always people that are willing to help us sin. So Saul, you know, he's got his guys that are willing to help him sin. I mean, it's just crazy to think about. Here's David. He's done nothing but good, totally benefited Israel, completely victorious in all of his battles, and yet there are people that are willing to help Saul kill him. Just amazing to me. And so this is the dynamic that's going on. We continue in verse 20. It says, Then Saul sent messengers to take David. The idea is, hey, I'm going to send some guys. We just found out where he is. These guys ratted him out. I'm going to send you guys to go take David. In other words, go kill David. 
Go take him out. Or go take David, bring him to me so I can kill him. Whatever. It's the same thing. This is what he's doing. And, and in this, we see the first element in God's perfecting process in the life of David. And we should take note in the implications for us. Here it is. David was pursued by evil men. David was pursued by evil men. So what do I mean by that? Well, you might expect that David, having been called by God, having been anointed by God, and having been made victorious by God, and having been faithful to God, you might think that God would not allow him to be persecuted, would not allow him to be pursued in this way. And yet, he does. You would think that he would leave him alone, but you would be wrong. Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Good word from the Lord. See, if you are a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will face persecution. Uh, The Bible says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. That is a promise from God. It might not be a promise that you put in a plaque and stick on your wall. You know, we love, we like the plaque, you know, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. You're like, yes, frame it, put it on the wall. Not this, not so, I don't want to frame and put on the wall that I'm going to face persecution But it's a promise nonetheless. Take it to the bank. You will face persecution. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. And here's what we need to keep in mind. We must always remember that God uses troubles and hardships for our good and for his purposes. Romans 8.28 should come to your mind at this point. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, I see Christians butcher this verse. All things work together for good to those that love God and are the called according to his purpose. Now, a lot of times Christians will butcher this, and here's how they butcher it. They, they will say to a brother or sister who's struggling, they'll say, hey, it's okay, you know what? All things are good. The Bible says all things are good. No, all things are not good. Some things are really, really bad. We read about this in, the, in, in uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. He wrestles with this question of, you know, why is there evil in the world? I mean, why would a loving God create evil? That is one of those huge questions that you're like, how do I, how do I reconcile this? And, and basically what C.S. Lewis points out is that, look, God is good. It's impossible for him to change. He's not going to change his nature. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all, the Bible says. So how is it that evil exists? Who created evil? Well, here's what God did create. God created good, and he created you and me, men and women, as free moral agents with the capacity to choose. We can choose to love him. We can choose to reject him. If we choose of our own free will to reject God... That in and of itself, that separation from God is evil, okay? And that's where sin enters into the world. See, God, he's not made you to be a robot. He wants you to love him, but love isn't love if you don't have a choice in the matter. So God has created you with the capacity to choose. You can receive him, you can reject him. If you reject him, this is when evil inserts itself into the world. And for God to allow that to play itself out then when evil is what, what you turn to, 
then he can't interfere and, and interrupt the, 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 the consequences of that evil. Now, there are some exceptions to this, but what we have to understand, and this is the big overarching big idea of this whole thing, is that God is working his sovereign purposes out. Providentially, God is working his will. It's been said that the, the providence is when the hand of God is in the glove of human events. And so this is the idea that, that God's providence is his sovereign will working itself out through human events. And, and, and this, man, is why we're going to face evil. This is why we are going to have to wrestle with evil. And it's why, even though God is sovereignly, lovingly doing a work in your life, that in that he may allow from time to time you to be persecuted, for you to be pursued for things to come into your life. The Bible tells us that we are to count it all joy when we fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And that idea of letting patience have its perfect work, in the original language, it's about an active, ongoing, giving over to. It's a you having the, the choice moment by moment to let this thing over to, oh, to the Lord, to trust the Lord, to yield to the Lord. The Bible talks about how we're to live our life as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is your reasonable service. And so the living of your sacrifice, the, the living of a sacrificial life, man, you, you know, it's been said the, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. Right? And so we're supposed to live this active, ongoing life of, my life belongs to you, Lord. Maybe you remember the story of the biosphere. Um, this is uh, something that is, has been created, the Biosphere 2 now existing there in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, I believe is where they built it. Somewhere, maybe Tucson, Arizona, somewhere in Arizona. They, they made this, this Biosphere. It's several acres and it's this controlled environment and scientists want to be able to study what is the perfect environment and how does you know, the ecosystem work outside of the influence of harmful effects of man and so on. And so they put it in this sphere where they can control everything and they can study everything. Well, one of the things that they found early on, they had these big trees that were in there that had grown up in there and all, and then they began to, to all of a sudden break. And so all of a sudden here you got these trees, then, all, then without any sort of influence, they're just breaking and falling and branches, you know, huge branches crashing down. Well, here's what they found out. They found out that it was the absence of wind that caused these big trees to break because what happens on a biological level, is that as trees are buffeted by winds and bending and, and, and getting, you know, tossed around by the wind, well, it causes on a molecular level that, that tree to be strengthened. It strengthens the fibers within the tree trunk itself so that they can better resist that buffeting. It's, it sent, causes the tree to send, down, send out and down deeper root system to be able to hold on better. And so what they had done is by creating an environment free from any sort of stress, free from any sort of buffeting and, and hardship, they had in fact done the, these, these, these trees a disservice. And so it's the same with you and I. 
We have to understand that, listen, maybe today you come here and you're going through an attack. And I know that many of you are. I I had a conversation with a brother after first service just telling me, man, God is speaking to me completely through today's message because I'm going through, you have no idea this attack I'm going through. He went on to tell me his story. And maybe today you're under attack. And, and, and what happens to us when we go under these attacks is we have a tendency to be able to, well, we start to doubt and to fear, right? We start to, to question. We start to wonder. We're like, you know, where are you, God? What did I ever do to you, God? And we start to, to really just be able to, to just stress over these things. And we have to remember, listen, God, he, he's allowing that attack. If you're being attacked today, God's allowing that attack. He's allowing you to be per- persecuted. He's allowing your enemy to pursue you. Why? Well, because he's doing a work in you. And so Saul sent messengers to take David, verse 20. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as a leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul. And they also prophesied. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time and they prophesied also. Then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Seku. That's, I guess that's how you pronounce it. Anyway, at Seku, so he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they are at Nioth in Ramah. And so he went there to Nioth in Ramah, and then the Spirit of God was also, or was upon him, Saul, also, and he went on and prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. And therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Here we see the second common element in God's refining process in David's life. And take note of it because it's a common element in our refining life. David was protected. David was protected. Seven times in four verses, we read the word prophecy or prophesying. And and what we need to understand is that uh, when it says prophesying, it's not talking about predicting the future here. This word in the Hebrew, it simply has the idea of speaking under the influence or the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay, And so really what you see here is a spontaneous outpouring of inspired praise to God. Just this spontaneous outpouring. This is not unlike, we see an example of this in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2 where the disciples have gathered together, they're, they're obeying the Lord, they're waiting upon the Lord. On the day of Pentecost, he pours his Holy Spirit out upon them. And, and what happens then is they, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they just begin praising God. And, and it, it says they began speaking in other tongues. And the word tongues in the Greek, it's, it's the word dialectos. It, it's dialects. They're speaking in different languages at that point. Now what had happened was that during this time, you had all sorts of, of, of Jews that had gathered from all different areas to worship God. So they're all there in Jerusalem, all in that area, and they're all speaking different, language, so, different languages. So what God does is he pours his Holy Spirit upon the disciples so that each one of them is praising and proclaiming the goodness of God in the various languages of the people that are assembled. What's the net effect is that God is communicating to all of these people, the good, glorious works of God. 
And so what's happening now is the people, you know, them seeing these men filled with the Spirit and speaking God's goodness by the anointing of of the Holy Spirit, they themselves are ministered to by the Holy Spirit, just like Saul's men being ministered by the Holy Spirit to the point that it leads them to worship the Lord, just a spontaneous response, this this outpouring of this goodness of God. And we read in Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 men were saved on that day because of this beautiful outpouring work of the Holy Spirit. Well, this is very similar to what we read here. Now, there's a big exception that you might be saying, well, wait a minute. The men in in the book of Acts, they were seeking after the Lord. They were waiting upon the Lord. Yes, they were. Here's the point, though, is that God's Holy Spirit still being poured out uh, both upon these men, but poured out upon these men that were coming to attack David. Yes, God able to reap. The Bible says that there's a day coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so what's happening here is that these men, even though they have been motivated by evil and on a mission to do evil, what happens is that God shows up and he completely just, in the pouring out of his Holy Spirit, he arrests them right in the middle of their evil intent and it causes them to fall down and to worship God and completely protecting David in the process. You say, that's ridiculous, that's incredible. It is. We see a modern example of this. Just There's a testimony that, that Pastor Jim Cimbala tells. He pastors a church in New York City and has seen God do incredible things. There are thousands of people coming to saving faith in Christ through his ministry. And he ministering one Sunday morning, uh, and, and, he, and he's right there in the heart of New York City. And this guy came into his church with a, with a gun and he was going to kill him. And, and, and he didn't know it, none of his guys knew it, but the, this, guy, this was this guy's intent. How did he find out? Well, in the middle of the altar call, some man in tears comes forward and hands him the gun. He says, I came here to kill you. He's like, what happened? He's like, God told me not to. And, and the guy got saved on the spot, just arrested by the Spirit of God, just, just meeting him, interrupting him there, God protecting Pastor Jim, and in this example, God protecting David. He has a way of just disarming these men. Wave after wave, as they come, God completely disarms them. See, the Holy Spirit knows how to protect us. And the safest place for us to be in the whole world is walking in the Spirit. Paul said this to the Romans, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Now, by protecting David in this way, the Holy Spirit's also sending a message to Saul. Basically, you know, God is telling Saul, Look, I don't, I don't want David captured. I'm sending these men home to you empty-handed but filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Because here's the deal. Instead of seeking to kill David, look, Saul, you ought to be filled with the Spirit of God. And this is an incredible example. You've got to get this. It's an incredible example, incredible picture of this simple fact. God loves you. He loves you with an unending love. He loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins in your place. 
The Bible says that God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. And what we see in this picture is that God, he's, yes, he's protecting David. Yes, he's putting a stop to Saul's murderous intent. But man, God not only sends each one of these men wave after wave back, having encountered the true and living God, but now when Saul himself goes, God interrupts him. And he pours his spirit out upon him such to the point to where Saul could be in this place to to say, oh, Lord, you're so good. And in fact, he does that. We see that response on Saul temporarily, right? It says that Saul went and it says he stripped off his clothes. You read that, you're like, what is up with that? And you lay there naked, man, just the weirdest thing. Now in the Hebrew, basically when you read this, the, the, the likelihood is not that, that he was buck naked here, okay? Um, it, it, it's likely, you know, certainly he's stripped down to his chonies. I mean, that's what's going on. But what he has done is he's taken off his royal robes. That's what he's done. See, he has encountered God in such a profound way. It's not unlike, you know, you read in Luke chapter 5. And Peter, there, you know, this is the, that's the section of scripture where Jesus gets into Peter's boat. I love it. I love stories with boats. Cool. Tell me it all day. You got me. You had me at boat, you know. And he gets into the boat, and they're fishing. And hey, go into the deep. Let down your nets for a catch. And the, soul, the whole bit. And God, you know, at the end of the day, you know, spoiler alert, they catch all these fish in the middle of the day, totally unlikely time that they should, fills their boats up so full that they begin to sink. And any fisherman worth his salt at this point is going to be doing everything to save the boat, everything to save the catch. What does Peter do? He falls down on his knees and he's worshiping the Lord and he says, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Why? Because when you encounter God, when you see God, and many of you have experienced this, when you see God, you get to a place where simultaneously you see how good he is and you see how bad you are, right? That's the thing. It's been said the Bible is like a mirror, right? James talks about how you look at, you're looking into the mirror of the Word of God. And there's this picture of as I'm reading and I'm seeing God's goodness, what is the reflection? The reflection is, God, I'm not good. God, I'm a sinner. God, have mercy on me. And this is what happens in Saul's life is that he encounters the true and the living God in such a profound way that it causes him just to strip off all his royal robes and be in that genuine place where he says, I'm nothing compared to you. And this has been Saul's problem all along. This is why he's trying to kill a man because he had gotten to the place where it was all about, he's believing all of his own press clippings. He's believing all of, it's not about God's kingdom in his life. It's about his empire and it's all about that. And David is a threat to his empire and he wants to take him out and then he smacks into God because God's good and because God loves him and God reveals himself to him and Saul realizes, man, I, I blew it. God's got plan A, which is, which is that we humble ourselves. Plan B, humiliation. And he brings Saul to the place where he's just humiliated before God and he strips this stuff off. Listen, some of you here today, man, I pray today that's where the place you would get to, is that you would recognize, God, you're good and you're glorious and I'm not And that you would, and listen, this is an opportunity for Saul. He responds in a great way. The tragedy is he doesn't stay here. He continues on his murderous intent. And he will do so through the end of the book. 
And we have to understand that maybe today, right now, this moment for you, it's an opportunity to just stop your fighting against God and to surrender and to be able to say, God, you're good, you're glorious, you're awesome. Well, now we're looking at David and we're considering what happens when you're in that David's shoes and you're in that place where you're being persecuted and you're being you know, pursued and, and all. And what is the deal? Hey, listen, David in this place, he's absolutely in a place where he's protected by God. See, God allows the persecution in his life. He allows him to be pursued, but God has drawn a line that Saul cannot cross. It's not unlike the line that, that God draws in Job's life. I, I won't have you turn there for time's sake, but the, the, you read in the book of Job, and you go in chapter 1 for, through the first five verses, and it, and it just basically is laying out the life of a godly man. It says, you know, there that he, that he, he prayed like he should, he sacrificed like he should, he, he did everything that he should do. And then verse 6 comes along of Job chapter 1, and God is there, and Satan shows up, and God's like, what are you doing here? Where you, where you been? And Satan's like, oh, I've, been, I've been cruising all over the earth there. The Bible says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for whom he may devour. And this is what happens, is that Satan's, you know, out, and he's doing all this stuff, and God's like, uh, you know, what are you doing? He says, I've been doing that. He goes, well, hey, have you considered my servant Job? And God goes on to say, he's a righteous man. He's more righteous than anybody on the face of the earth. He's a, he's a good man. He's a godly man. Have you checked him out yet, Satan? And Satan's like, hey, he's only good because you blessed him. And you put a hedge of protection around him. You know, we pray as Christians for a hedge of protection. Kind of a weird saying. We get it from the book of Job. And, and so Satan's like, he's only good because you've protected him. And you've blessed him. And he's got a great family and he's got money and you, you take all that stuff away from him, he will curse you to your face. God's like, all right, you know what? Have at him. But you can't take his life. And see, God, God protects David. He lets Satan work him over, but he, but he draws that line and says, listen, I'm going to protect him. I'm going to draw that line where, hey, you cannot cross this line. And listen, here's what Job says. I'll put this verse on the screen for you. Job 42, verse 5. This is the last chapter of the book. This is where Job gets to having been put through the ringer. Here's what Job says. He says, I have heard of you, God, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Speaking to the Philippian church, Paul said this. He says that we know Jesus. We know him by the fellowship of his sufferings. See, what God did in Job's life, yes, he was good, yes, he was godly, yes, he was more righteous than any man on the face of the earth. That's God's estimate. And even so, God says, I'm going to allow him to be put through the ringer. Why? Because at the end of it, he's going to know me even better. He's going to glorify me even more. And that's exactly what Job's testimony was. Look, I, 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 I knew you by faith, now I know, I've seen you work in my life, God, and you're good. And this is the work that God wants to do in your life. Well, the, the third thing that we see in David's perfect, per, perfecting process is that David was perplexed. David was perplexed. Chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Then David fled from Nioth, in Ramah, and he went and he said to Jonathan, what have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? 
Listen, David's been nothing but good to this man. He's been nothing but faithful. He's done everything God has asked of him. And David at this point is in a place where certainly what's going on in his heart and his mind is to say, if this is the thanks I get? I mean, I, you know, God, he anointed me and I, was, I, I would just stayed humble. I stayed out in that stupid field tending those sheep. And then, and then, you know, my chance came and I took it and I was obedient and I killed Goliath and, and Saul made all these promises to me and he reneged on them. I mean, he, he had me, you know, fight all of his battles. I did that without question. I was totally successful. Promised me his daughter, never gave her to me. On the wedding day, gave her to somebody else. I didn't react. I didn't kill him. I didn't do any of that stuff. And this is the thanks I get. David's perplexed, and here's the thing, if we're honest, I mean, we are perplexed sometimes when God does these things in our life, are we not? We're absolutely perplexed, we're like, why on earth? I don't understand why God allows some things in my life. Absolutely, I don't get it. It's like, if you ever put together a jigsaw puzzle, maybe it's a, you know, 500-piece jigsaw puzzle, or a 1,000-piece, or a, you know, 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle, you know the one you get it started and then it takes your table hostage for a month and a half, you know, until you finish it. And inevitably, when you're doing that puzzle, you come up with a piece and you're like, well, this doesn't fit. And, and, and in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, some guy at the puzzle place is just messing with me. I mean, this is a cat puzzle, you know. Somebody stuck some sort of piece in there that doesn't belong. And what do we end up doing with that piece of puzzle? We try and get it to fit somewhere. You ever done that? You're like, oh, yeah. And you know at the time, you're like, this doesn't really go here. But you're the, I'm just going to go there. And you try and force it in. And that's what happens in our lives, right? We, there, there's things that happen in our life that we just don't get. We just don't understand. And I'm so comforted by the fact that David is perplexed too. This is one of the ways we know the Bible's true, by the way. Because it doesn't gloss over its heroes. It doesn't, like, make them to be superhuman we see him warts and all. We see him flaws and all. And what we see in David is exactly what we go through. God, I don't get it. What? What did I ever do, Jonathan, to your dad? That he should treat me like, that's not fair. Look, you go through stuff. Maybe you're going today through stuff. It's not fair. It doesn't make sense. And you're in a place where you're asking the question like, what is up with that, God? Why? I don't see. This puzzle doesn't fit. And if you've heard nothing else I've said this morning, listen to this. Hear intently what I'm about to say. Because the thing is, when we go through it, in the moment it doesn't make sense. In the moment it's like that puzzle piece. In the moment I'm like, you know, this doesn't fit and I don't get it. I'm perplexed. It doesn't make sense. And here's what I want you to hear. How could it make sense? How could it possibly make sense when God allows something in your life today that is going to pertain and be used by him for something down the road? It can't make sense to you because you live inside time. You're like me. We're physical beings. It's like you're watching a parade and you're sitting there at the side of the, the curb, you know, on Disneyland Main Street Parade, whatever it is. And, and so, well, it's not the best illustration because you know that parade because you've been there and you've seen it a hundred times. But whatever, you're at a parade and what, all you can see is what's in your purview, what's, what's just immediately coming and what's immediately just gone by. God's in the Goodyear blimp. 
He knows the end from the beginning. He sees the staging area. He sees the the parade when it's done. He knows the whole thing. And that's the way it is with life. We go through something and I'm like, this doesn't fit right here. And God says, I'm I'm doing something that's 20 years from now. I'm doing something that's 30 years from now. It shouldn't make sense to you right now because, because you live in this place in the here and now. And that's why our, our, our calling is, is, is to, to live a life of faith, trusting in God. We live from faith to faith to faith. We have to trust in the God who knows the end from the beginning. Now, there, there are many examples of this, both in real life and biblically. Think about Joseph. Here's a guy, brothers sell him into slavery, right? And, 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 and being sold into slavery, Joseph is in a place where... His brothers have betrayed him. He's sold into slavery. He, he's falsely accused while he's in slavery, right? Remember Potiphar's wife, or, or Potiphar ends up, you know, buying him as a slave. He's pleasing in Potiphar's sight. He's faithful in all he does. Potiphar puts him in charge of his entire house, and all of a sudden, his wife gets hot for him. You know, and Potiphar's a rich man, so you know he's got the trophy babe wife, and she's throwing herself at him. And, and it comes to the place where she's like, hey, you know, lie with me. Let's, let's, let's sleep together. And, she, and, and Joseph, in a place, go, I can't sin against God like this. He runs from her. She grabs, rips his clothes off. He runs out naked into the street. And so all of a sudden, she turns on. She's like, oh, he tried to rape me. And so Potiphar's mad, as he should be if it were true, but it's not. And you're in David's shoes, or you're in, in Joseph's shoes, and you're like, God, I can't catch a break here. I mean, you allow this to happen with my brothers, and now, you know, things seem to be going good. Now they're bad. Now I'm in prison. And then all of a sudden, he interprets a dream for a couple guys in prison, and, you know, the, and one of them, you're going to die, and the king's going to reinstate you, and this is exactly what happens. And his only plea is, when you go before the king, would you tell him, would you remember, would you just tell him about me? Remember me before the king. I'm wrongly accused. I'm here in prison. And the guy gets there. He totally forgets about him. But God's doing a work. See, because what happens then is the king starts having these troubling dreams. The king of Egypt. Joseph languishing in prison. All of a sudden, the king's servant goes, Oh, hey, there's a guy in prison that I met. And he can interpret dreams. What's happening? This is the providence of God. When, when, when God's hand is in the glove of human events. And God would say to Joseph, I have let all of this transpire to put you in this time and in this place right now for me to do this work through you. And Joseph comes, he interprets the dream, and the king of Egypt puts him number two in charge. And he institutes the program so that, hey, look, there's a famine coming along the land. Everyone's going to be starving. And so, hey, we got several years now because God has spoken to Joseph. And because God has placed Joseph in this place and time. And so now we can be prepared for it. And what ends up happening? It comes full circle. Joseph's family comes to Egypt looking for food. Because they're starving. And God has placed him there the whole time. So that he can take and provide and protect the very people that betrayed him. And in the moment in time, Joseph could look at that puzzle piece and go, This is jacked up. This makes no sense, and God, you are not a good God. And God would say, I am a good God, and you have no idea what the future holds for you, and you have no idea what I'm doing. And maybe today you're in that place, and you have no idea, and right now today you're here struggling, and you go, God, it is not good. This is messed up. And God would say to you, you have no idea what I'm doing, and how could you? Because I alone hold the future. I hold your future. We need to trust in God. 
Turn to uh, John chapter 11. I've got just enough time to cover this. John chapter 11. We read in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. Lazarus was of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And therefore the sister sent to him, that is Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, him who you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard, now take note of that verse 5. By the way, we're going to talk about this next week. We have a special message next week for Palm Sunday. I'll just simply tell you we're going to be going through this section of Scripture. And let me just say this, that I'm going to be sharing the most important news for our church next week than, than I've ever shared before. You do not want to miss next week. And I'll just leave you hanging right there, but you need to be here next week, okay? Um, but right now, again, look at verse 5, because it, it, it's, it's making a point here, wants you to take note. What does he say in verse 5? Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, or her sister and Lazarus, okay, so what? Well, verse 6, so when he heard that he was sick, he came right away, he dropped everything, he ran. No, it says he stayed two more days in the place where he was. You're like, what? Yeah, and the story gets worse, because he goes on. And we find out that Lazarus dies, and they bury him, and then the Lord comes. You're like, wait a minute, I thought you said you loved them. I thought you said you, 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 you were, they, they were your dear friends, man. Yeah, because what? God's doing something. He's doing something incredible, and he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But when he shows up, and Mary and Martha, they love the Lord. They've sacrificed for the Lord. And what do they say when he shows up? They're like, my translation, you blew it. Where, yeah, now you show up. Where were you when we needed you? Because he's dead now. And the Lord's like, yeah, you know what? Open up the tomb. They're like, he stinks. This is literally what they say to him in the Bible. They're like, he stinks now. And the Lord says, Lazarus, come forth. And he raises him from the dead. Now, in time, they saw. They worshiped. They glorified. They, they praised. But in the moment, Lord, you blew it. My fourth and final point, David was pruned by God. And really, this is the whole point. All of these points together, we could summarize with this fourth point. David was pruned by God. See, when David was pursued, when he was persecuted, when he was protected, when he was perplexed, this is all part of God's pruning process in his life. Why? Because God is preparing David to rule a nation. 
And David requires pruning to be properly prepared. Jesus said this in John's Gospel, John 15, verses 1 and 2, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. I recently discussed this principle with my pastors and elders. Just the pruning of God. Because here's the thing. Conceptually, we understand pruning. But practically speaking, when we go through it, we don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. Here's why. Because when you prune a plant, and I actually got some information from, from the, the, the Vinters and, and, a, and a, some websites that talked about the need for, pr- for pruning and, and, and you know what's going on biologically in the plant. Why does it require pruning? When you prune a plant is when it's going to town and producing all kinds of fruit. When it's been a wonderfully productive plant, that's when you prune it. Why? Well, because if you don't, what happens then is that you're like, oh, it produced all this fruit and it's got all these buds on it and we should just let it go. Yeah, in the short term, you'll have more fruit. But because you have more fruit, it requires more nutrients and more energy and everything goes into ripening more fruit on this, on this one section of plant. And so what happens then is the fruit takes longer to mature and because it takes longer to mature, there's an acid-base balance in it and it makes the, the, the season extend that. It doesn't mature as quickly. It takes longer to mature for the more fruit. takes valuable energy from the vine. And so by the time that the fruit is ripened, it will either A, not fully ripen because there's just too much fruit, or it will ripen, but it took so long to ripen that the acid-base balance is messed up and it's now worthless to be used for wine or for jellies or whatever it was that you were going to use it for. Not only that, but now you've just drained a lot of energy that should have gone into preparing the plant for winter. And now because the season was extended and you had to wait longer for the fruit to develop, now that plant is placed in a, in a position where it doesn't have the energy and the resources to be prepared for the hardship coming in winter. So that the next season what happens is you're, you actually either have reduced fruit that is produced or worse, the plant dies. And this is the point for us. God reveals himself in his creation, the Bible tells us. And we need to understand Jesus making it clear, look, if you're producing fruit in your life, if you're being faithful to me and loving me and trusting me, guess what I'm going to do in your life? I'm going to cut on you. And, and he makes it clear, look, some people, I cut out. Because they, they have no fruit. They have not surrendered their life to me. They're not going to trust me with their life. That's the picture. This is not talking about, hey, a Christian who, hey, you, you better work hard to earn God's faith. That's not what the idea is. The idea is abide in the Lord, let him do the cutting work in your life. And if you have no interest in that, and if you have no fruit in your life at all, then God's going to, someday you're going to face judgment. You didn't surrender to me. You didn't trust me. And he will cut you off. But listen, don't mistake that when God is cutting on you. Because, listen, we got two options. We've got to understand pruning from, from two perspectives. Either God cuts us off or he cuts us to be more fruitful. And maybe today you're being pursued and perplexed. Listen, trust him. 
You need to trust the Lord. Here's, here's what the Lord says in Matthew's gospel. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Today, I urge you, if you're going through a difficulty, don't doubt, trust. If you've got a piece of puzzle in your life that you don't understand, trust, because God will fill it in. If you're here today and you are in that place where you have never surrendered your life to the Lord, you need to understand that you have an opportunity today, just like Saul had an opportunity. God, by his grace, revealing himself to you, and you can trust him and you can know him today as your Lord and Savior. You can have a hope of eternal life.